The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. It's really despicable. It's despicable that somebody can say things about somebody and an organ. More importantly, 17-year-old kids. You're taking shots at 17-year-old kids and their families. They're, they're, they're all money. They're, we bought every player on this group. We never bought anybody. No rules were broken. Nothing was done wrong. It's despicable that a reputable head coach could come out and say this when he doesn't get his way or things don't go his way. The narcissist in him doesn't allow those things to happen, and it's ridiculous But when, when he's not on top. And the parody in college football he's been talking about, go talk to coaches who coach for him. You'll find out all the parody. Go dig into wherever he's been. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast. Here on CBS Sports, that's Danny Cannell, that's Tom Fernelli, I'm Chip Patterson, coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover3. Come and hang out, smash that like, smash that subscribe, jump on into the comments and join us. Thanks to all of you that are watching across the entire 24-7 Sports Facebook network. And if you are listening on the audio platform, thank you to you as well. You are day one OGs. If you want to give us uh, a five-star review, guess what? That's also an opportunity to put in a question for a future mailbag episode. Again, five-star review. Put your mailbag question in there. We will tackle it in a future edition of the mailbag. So much has happened since the last time we got together. Uh, It has been tumultuous. It has been spicy. And now I am so glad to be joined uh, by you two here to get into, among other things, uh, we're going to get into the CBS Sports Power 5 coach rankings. And uh, before we get there, we do have to tackle some of the events of the last week. Shout out to Bud Elliott, who uh, who held it down solo on Thursday with what was, in the experience, a, a watch party for the Jimbo Fisher press conference <laughs> as he went live, right as Jimbo did as well. Uh, so, so, gentlemen, how are we doing? I'm good. Good. I'm glad that we finally got you out of prison. It's glad, happy to see you back on the show. How was, was prison life? It, it you really learn a lot about yourself. You know? <laughs> you really learn a lot about yourself. Uh, you know, it's a, it was it was suggested um, that Bud Elliott used all of his uh, his his sicko play earnings to bail me out. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny uh, how how I was able to uh, to join you all right now, but uh, certainly there was a lot of creativity there. But um, I mean, it's 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 good. It's good to be back. How, how are y'all? You doing? look, you know, for somebody who's locked up, you look pretty refreshed. You look like well rested. You look good. I, I was, I'm fired up. I, I was energetic to to be back with you all. Oh, we already got to talk on your radio show earlier today uh, about this very topic. So it. Just to, to go through the the very quick version, we've got uh, number one, Nick Saban telling, uh, as he sits on stage with other Alabama coaches, telling a room full of Alabama boosters, you know, uh, among other things, that he, you know, Alabama, we were number two, Texas A&M was number one, they bought every player. Those fiery comments you saw from Jimbo Fisher, that was on the Thursday after the Wednesday night when those Nick Saban comments came out. Nick Saban circled back on Thursday afternoon, 
with an apology, said he shouldn't have singled anyone out. And he was he was just talking about the issues in college football as a whole. Then by the end of the week, we get a public reprimand from SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. No, no, no. You boys, uh, you boys start acting right uh, or else we're going to have to have uh, a talk in the principal's office. So. You know, I mentioned you know, Bud did a, a good summary of especially the Saban comments and passing along some of the Jimbo Fisher. Now that we've had the full Fisher press conference, now that we've had the Saban apology on Thursday afternoon and the SEC commissioner coming in and saying, uh, you guys got to calm it down just a little bit. It, how are, are you entertained? Do you think there's something really to chew on other than just being some great talk about college football in May? You know, what would you make of uh, the last week or so? I thought it was hilarious more than anything. I mean, it's just Saban saying it like we, he apologized for it and, you know, he said, fine, but like he knew what he was doing when he did it. Like it's Saban for somebody who is as detailed and process oriented as he is, as far as running that program, like he didn't accidentally name drop Texas A&M. He didn't accidentally name drop, you know, Deion Sanders and Jackson State. He he was he was pissed. He's pissed that his team finished second in the recruiting rankings. And he's also pissed at his boosters for not having their stuff in order like Texas A&M does. Because all Saban wants to do is be the best at everything and win. And he sees that Texas A&M has been a little bit ahead of the curve on how to use this to their advantage and take advantage of it and get the kind of recruiting classes that Nick is usually, you know, accustomed to putting together for Alabama. And for somebody as competitive as he is, he decided to let it out. And this is what we get. It's you asked if it's entertaining. I mean, that's like yes. the easiest layup question that's there. This has been the most entertaining we've had thing we've had in college football, probably since the championship game. I mean, this is phenomenal. It's great. For everybody except Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, and the SEC, which is why I think they've all kind of dialed it back somewhat. Because I do think Nick Saban, I totally agree with Tom. Like, I think he did this um, strategically of a call to arms, if you will, for his boosters, collectives, name, image, and likeness uh, opportunities. He wants to make sure that people know why they didn't have the number one class. Instead, Texas A&M did. So I think it was a wake-up call to some. Then I think he quickly dialed it back because I do think – like I put out a poll the other day because Nick Saban said, I've never bought a player. And I just did a general poll. Does anybody believe Nick Saban never bought a player? Ninety. It was the most lopsided poll I've ever seen. 91% said they don't believe Nick Saban. The other 9% probably – Either they're bam, they're probably part of the collectives or NIL groups or whatever it is that goes in this system to play Alabama players. So I think Nick Saban very quickly realized, especially with Jimbo Fisher's like threats of really, you want to dig in your past? Let's go. That's the moment that Saban was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not the direction I wanted this to go. Let's just dial it back some. And it kind of goes back to the agreement that this conference has had for the last 20 years of what are we doing? Why would we air these things out publicly, open ourselves up to criticism and potentially NCAA investigations? Everyone, quiet down. Let's go about business as usual. We'll keep winning championships and collecting checks. Everybody, shh. Like, that's basically what Sankey came in and did. And I think it's a smart thing, but I'm very curious to see. Obviously, you've got the October 8th date in Tuscaloosa, but more more importantly and sooner than that, we'll get the SEC media days because this is going to be put back on the table. And I'm just wondering if everyone plays nice or – and it's probably Jimbo, but imagine like Lane Kiffin, you think he's going to keep his mouth shut after watching all this? There's only one guy I think that really wants everyone quiet, and it's 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 Kirby. Kirby's just sitting back like, yeah, you guys keep just knocking each other off. I'll look at my championship ring, and we'll dial it back up. I think it's going to be interesting to see if everybody can play nice at SEC media days. What's hilarious? You know, like you me has become must-see TV now. You mentioned Lane Kiffin. It's funny because, like, if you read, if you've read any, like, the articles that have stemmed from this, like, Bruce Feldman wrote one at The Athletic where he was, like, you know, quoting coaches, like, their reactions to it, and other sites have done it. Every single coach in all these stories is speaking anonymous, anonymously, except for Lane Kiffin. <laughs> Lane Kiffin's like, yeah, no, put me on the record. I thought it was insane. <laughs> he said I didn't get any work done. I just sat there and stared at my screen with my mouth open. He said I couldn't. He was in shock. And it's funny because, there are 
a lot of connections. You know, Jimbo Fisher did the the very pointed thing and something that was um, that made it more. What made it to me uh, as personal as it could possibly get was him mentioning Bobby Bowden as a <laughs> foil to Nick Saban and saying you work with Bobby Bowden and you understand how to treat people and how to do things. And I have not gone back to work for that guy again. Like that is very, very personal. And that hits to like the core of how you, you feel about this situation right now. And I look at the rest of that um, community because, you know, we've heard that there is a group chat of a bunch of Saban assistants. I, I have never heard that Jimbo Fisher was a part of that group chat. I think it's more of like your, I think that Lane is in all of the different circles, but like (laughs) Muschamp and Jimbo used to have a beach house together that they shared at one point. I don't know if that's still going on, but the, the coaching tree of Nick Saban, that's, I, I kind of want to see the group chats. Like Mm -hmm. what, what is, what are Lane and Kirby and Muschamp and all these guys when they're texting each other? Because when Jimbo Fisher says, go talk to anybody who's worked for him, it's like, well, guess what? That's going to talk to these guys right now. I think that everything remains calm, but I I do wonder to your point about SEC media days where there are former Nick Saban assistants all over the place. I got to think that anybody with any connection to Nick Saban is going to get a question about this. If not at media days, at least in some of the talking season that leads up to the regular season, right? It's, it's like when you're friends with a couple and you're friends with both the people in the couple and you're friends with them for a long time. And then they go through very public breakup. And now you've got to try to navigate the waters of like, am I still both their friends? Am I only going to be one of their friends? How am I going to do it? I think that's what's going on in a lot of these coaching group texts right now. It's like, well, who do we support? What do we do? Whose side are we on? It's just like, how do we do this? How do we handle this? Can we invite them both to the same party? I don't know. Don't you think clearly, clearly I think what Saban is doing, right? I mean, it's, there's re- there again strategic of what he's doing. I think one, it's a call to arms, but I also feel because he did make the parody comment, which was bizarre. And that was before that, right? That yes, was like that was like ten days before, maybe. Right. And it was it was one of those ones like everyone was like, "What are you talking about? You've never experienced parody." Like, yeah, you'd love to go back the way things were. I do feel like some of this is coming from a place where Saban realizes he's losing his edge that he's had for 15 years at Alabama by being able to dominate the recruiting space, dominate, you know, the, the coaching staffs, you know, just dominate pretty much every area. So he has a significant edge and he knows that. And he knows that's a big reason why he's been able to become the greatest coach ever. And I think he's not struggling, but maybe he's trying to figure out a way so he doesn't lose that edge. And I think think that's a very real struggle for him that he's trying to navigate so he doesn't lose it because it's going to be a lot. I mean, we already saw him beat beat last year by Texas A&M. We saw the first assistant beat him. Um, I think there's a a portion of this which to me does feel like we are getting close to the end of the Nick Saban era because I think there's frustration and this public criticism now that he's going to get. And if he does have this target in his back and more former players and coaches start speaking out about the way things really work at Bama, I just wonder how much longer he's on that sideline. I think that he's going to be able to play, um, like like go get free agents every year from the transfer portal mm-hmm. and run them out there to see if they can go win a national championship. I mean, there's, there was something about his disappointment with those, I, I'm thinking about the wide receivers. I'm thinking about, you know, Ajay Hall, Jaleel Billingsley. I don't know. Look at any of the Alabama players that have transferred out of the program. Many of them uh, who have ended up at, at Texas right now. And just if if he's not uh, at that point where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this every single year, but I the bigger operation clearly is not going to be running. The player development is not working in the same way. The way that you stack top recruiting classes and they end up, you're constantly churning over such that your uh, Mark Ingram goes to Trent Richardson, goes to, uh, you know, Damian Harris, like the Derrick Henry, Derrick Henry, like the, the everything that about the industrial complex seems like it's in its late era, right? Like we, we are really starting to see the, the dominant start to be challenged. And, if Nick Saban wants more parity, it's probably because he doesn't want anybody to cash him in the title race, right? <laughs> like, let's see, let's see, uh, hey, let's let's share the wealth a little bit, right? Right as I'm on my way out right now. But I agree with you, Danny. I do all of this 
from the parody on has made me wonder if Nick Saban is, is starting to be uh, starting to be fed up with uh, all the changes that he's having to make. I mean, he was against what? Um, I know Bud on last Thursday mentioned he was against hurry up offenses, right? He was like, he came out and he was like, is this what we want football to be? Uh, he was against the satellite camps. He was against all of these different developments and all of this. I don't know if it was all progress, but changes within college football. And then he's, ultimately adapted i i don't know if he's got it in him oh it's, i don't know i don't want to say that i wonder if this last adaption is something that he's not adaptation is gonna be something that he's excited about you know what's funny is you mentioned like nick being you know is this what we want football to be as far as like the up-tempo offenses and while this was long before it at that him saying it part of the rift between him and Jimbo from what I've read is that when Jimbo was his offensive coordinator at LSU, like part of Jimbo's problem with Nick is that Nick's very, at the time was very much, my defense is going to win us the games. Your job is just to not screw things up. And that was always a kind of a cause of friction between him and Saban in that, that has got clearly carried on in other directions. So I, I do think it's funny that, yeah, that it's kind of ironic that it comes to that. But I also just kind of want to talk about the fact that like I'm on Jimbo's side here. Like I, I think what Nick did was wrong. I think naming names was wrong and doing it in a public setting. Like he could have gotten the message he wanted to get across to his boosters without specifically calling out Texas A&M or any other school. And while we would have been able to do the math ourselves, still he didn't have to do it. There's a kind of a code that I do feel like Saban broke. So I understand why Jimbo's mad. But I also want to point out that Jimbo heard these comments called together a press conference, had the school announce the press conference hours ahead of time, put it out. It's going to be at 10 a.m. Central. Forced a bunch of media people to come down to the news conference, TV networks, local networks, national networks, had the press conference broadcast nationally across the country, ESPN, SEC Network, all these other places. He did all that and then called another man a narcissist. <laughs> like, bro, <laughs> you could have just put out a statement saying, you know, I feel that Nick's comments were out of line, blah, 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 yada, yada. No, you called a press conference and made sure everybody was watching it and then called somebody else a narcissist. And that, to me, is the funniest part of the entire thing. CFP, is, CFP Anon checking in? <laughs> They're both in on it. That is outstanding. Yeah, That's a great <laughs> observation. That's so good. <laughs> Why... Why do you think, because I don't believe anybody. I don't believe any of them. Like Jimbo's <laughs> like, we did all this the right way. I don't believe him either. I think he did it a legal way because you can now and until the courts decide. I mean, I guess technically Jimbo might be worried that the NCAA could come snooping around and the, some of the threats and this new task force that maybe he's trying to do it. And I guess maybe that could be why he's so adamant that we did it the right way. But Clearly, that class was not built on relationships alone. Like, this wasn't a relational recruiting class. It's more transactional, but why are you still trying to proclaim it with such authority as we did it the right way when you could do it that way? That's the one thing I'm a little bit confused by. Mm -hmm. And maybe it is. Maybe coaches are really worried about the unknown of what could be coming down the pipe rather soon with this task force if they, if they start digging around you know, these programs. Because from what I've read, and I'm sure you guys have seen some of the same things, like they're not going to go after the players and deem the players ineligible. They'll come after the coaches and, you know, the, the universities with, you know, million dollar fines are some of the threats that I've seen. So maybe that's what it is. But I was a little bit curious as to why Jimbo was so adamant that he didn't do anything wrong either. I think he I know why. Because I think that if you look at this class, I will take Jimbo at his word. And I will believe him when he says that everything Texas A&M did to put together this class, they did by following the rules that now exist that allow them to do that. Fine. But let's not forget, Jimbo has also said in recent interviews, and I don't have the direct quote, but to paraphrase, when he's been asked what's different about recruiting now in this NIL thing, he's basically said, well, nothing's changed for me. We're doing the same stuff. It's just all out in the open now. So I think that's why Jimbo is possibly worried about things coming around, snooping around Texas A&M, because maybe before NIL, there were some things done that everybody's doing that maybe, you know, he doesn't want to be found out. I think Jimbo's fed up. Remember, sliced bread was his last like big tirade. 
And when Lane Kiffin talked about the luxury tax, that got on his nerves. And, you know, there's, it's, it's been mentioned that there's lots of reasons why he might want to squash rumors of a $25,000 or $25 million recruiting class, including what it could mean for you trying to line up deals for future recruits. But that, I think that there has got to be some part of Jimbo's um, fiery response. Yes, a lot of it was pointed at Nick Saban, somebody who he called a narcissist, who said, hey, we make him out to be God. Go find out how God you know, got his success and things like that. That was very personal, very directed at Nick Saban. But in general, his defensiveness about the recruiting class goes back to National Signing Day. His defensiveness about this recruiting class feels like he has been attacked by multiple different levels. And I think that that's got to be a big part of uh, the his own, like, I am going to do this as publicly and as loud as possible right now. But from a human psychology standpoint, let's look at ourselves. What when do we get the most upset by somebody's criticism of us? When it's what, right? Yeah. When they're <laughs> when they when they hit the nail on the head. That's when we get upset. So just consider that. Mm. All right. One more part of this uh that I want to oppose because I, I, I truthfully don't know if I'm all in on this, but it has been mentioned uh, by several within the college football uh, ecosystem that you know we are getting excited or entertained by the back and forth between these two, the history they have, you know, the significance of what it means on the field, but they are within the large context of what both of them were saying, they were calling for some, you know, real, you know, structural change. They are doing the same thing that a lot of college coaches are in ringing an alarm bell and saying that, you know, this is not sustainable. We need help. They are calling on the federal government. You know, they, they are using the word antitrust without any other, like, I mean, I think they're just checking off the buzzword, right? Like at some point you got to say antitrust without actually explaining, you know, what, what it has to do with anything. That's what the, I get, that's what I'm picking up from it. Um, so do you think, that within these messages that are being sent are, is that just another thread that is frustrating every single coach? Or do you think that these two very, very public coaches, so two of the few coaches to have active coaches to have national championships, I think there's only four in college football right now, mm -hmm. five, five in college football right now. Um, these are two of them. Do you think that they are going to, they uh, had any success in using their platform and continuing this conversation of college coaches asking for help from federal government, asking for change at the NCAA governance level. Did, did that message get lost uh, within the rest of all, all of the rest of this? Yeah, a little bit. I don't think it's lost forever, but I think like, I, I think that we just had a period there where that was the biggest issue being discussed. And then as so often happens, the tabloid headline hits and kind of pushes that to the back. But I still think that's a situation that's being dealt with and being addressed and coaches are going to continue to push, especially like Danny was saying earlier, once we get to sec media days, they're not going to be like this discussion will be used for some like questions about it, but it will lead to a discussion more about what we have to, or what coaches want them to do about NIL and guidelines and all that stuff going forward. It's uh, it's not good. I think it put it on the back burner a little bit, but this isn't going away. I mean, this is yeah. like give Pat Narduzzi a microphone at the ACC Media Days. What do you think he's going to say? You know, mm -hmm. about the need for structure. I mean, that every single coach that I talk to, and it's really on or off the record, are just like, we need something. We need some guidelines. We can't keep operating this way. And it's because they, I like coaches are very structure oriented like they want to, and they want to know the structure so then they can figure out how do we best utilize it and they'll push the boundaries right but for the most part most of them want us they don't want to get in trouble for it so now i think clearly there are some schools that are more willing to push that envelope and some that aren't and i think all of them are frustrated probably the ones that are trying to at least avoid the appearance of pay for play are probably a little more frustrated. They're saying, well, what about that? You know, what about that class? Kind of what we're seeing these accusations fly around. And I think the, everyone just wants some answers as far as what, what are we allowed to do? You know, like tell me what we can and can't do, even though it's there. I think the frustrating thing is that there's, there's schools that aren't listening to those. And if you look at, I mean, I've never, I know attorneys are confident and cocky, but I don't think I've ever seen a group, as cocky as the agents and lawyers that are representing the players in these NIL deals. I mean, have you read their comments? They're like, Oh, that's cute. The NCAA is going to try to prevent these good luck. Like 
go ahead, take us to court. We'll have a lawsuit filed the next day. Like they are extremely calm. John Ruiz, the booster at Miami, is like, I am locks, I am ironclad. There is nothing they're gonna do to get us in trouble. So it's it's just the need for answers and direction on what you can and can't do is is just that should be at the forefront. And yet if we're asking for help from Congress or politicians, that has me concerned. Like, is this going to get resolved anytime soon? And I'd say the answer is no. Mm. We'll, we'll have a the the big existential. What is football going to be? Uh, will just continue to be a thread that, of course, we're going to end up talking about throughout the off season and in, until it's resolved. And I come back to something that Danny was saying. I th- I think it was on a podcast. If not, it was when we were just having a conversation pre or post show, which is we love college football so much. That's why we always talk about ways to make it better. Like this, like it, it, we are not complaining about the sport that we cover because just to complain or to be negative. We really want this to be the best possible version of the sport. And it is, uh, it is in a period of transition. So we will, uh, we'll continue to keep everything going as we look ahead uh, to what the sport will be in the future. So all that, happened between two coaches. I mentioned of them, two of them who have national championship rings. They are also the number one and the number five coach on the CBS Sports Power 5 coach rankings. We will break down that CBS Sports Power 5 coach rankings list as well as share some of our own thoughts from our own ballots and more next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Let's go. Top Gun Maverick coming out. <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. And maybe we'll do a, uh, I don't know if we can do a watch party. Maybe we'll do a, a reaction, an instant reaction. I'm Top in. Gun Maverick. Uh, I'm in. Then we can write it off as a business expense. Uh, <laughs> are they putting that in? Uh, they, they've got to be putting those in like the big like IMAX and stuff. Theaters, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sign, sign, sign me up. I'll take mm-hmm. t- I'll take two young boys under the age of two and just throw them in there <laughs> with earplugs. <laughs> I'm sure what adrenaline looks like. <laughs> All right, Power Five coach rankings on CBS Sports, an annual off-season um, piece here for us at CBSSports.com. The this is ballots are distributed to a lot of the CBS Sports expert. We fill them out one through sixty-five. The consensus is put together and posted very quickly. Um, The top 10, Nick Saban at one, Kirby Smart at two, Dabo Sweeney at three, Lincoln Riley at four, Jimbo Fisher at five, followed by Ryan Day at six, Brian Kelly at seven, Kyle Whittingham at eight, Jim Harbaugh at nine, and Mike Gundy at 10. Now, there's a a couple pieces of information that we need to share with the listeners and the viewers. Number one is Tom Fernelli's name is on the author line of these posts. That means that he has tirelessly written out 65 blurbs explaining what led the coach to that ranking. It is not his actual rankings, which means that here on the Cover 3 podcast, we get to actually hear where he ranked some of these coaches. Um, Not necessarily uh, a message that always gets across. The second piece of information is that uh, everyone has different ways to go about ranking. You can take your number of career wins. You can take uh, recency bias. You know, there, there's a lot of coaches with you know, very different resumes and profiles, and it's very difficult uh, to stack them up against each other. And number three, being a Power 5 coach is a good thing. 
Okay. If you are no, if you are on this list, it means you are employed by a power conference university to be a head football coach. You have done something right. So I just want to, I'm not going participation trophy on this, but I do want to point out that just even being on this list is a good thing. Even if you're down at 40, whatever, or 50 something, because it means that you aren't awful because if you were awful, you wouldn't be on this list. You'd be fired and you'd be a coordinator somewhere else. So Tom, um, uh, I want to start by throwing it to you. Uh, let's, before we get into some of our, own, I've got risers and fallers, a couple identified, I've got a couple of coaches that I know from my ballot I, I struggled with or wanted to discuss, but any, what are some of the strongest takeaways from going over this list one through 65? Uh, my biggest takeaway, honest to God, as I was doing all this was that, I mean, I don't have our full panel of voters. I don't know everybody who did it, but I know that every year. Yeah, I want some, names. Yeah, I want I names. That, I know there are some new people that enter every year and some people who leave, but man, the, there is some like, you know, the SEC bias that you hear about. It exists in these rankings very strongly. Like that and recency bias, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, recency bias, you're never going to be able to avoid, but like right. just, just examples, like, as I'm going through these things and I'm writing these the other week, like Shane Beamer was 65 last year, went seven and six at South Carolina, which exceeded all of our expectations. He climbs 24 spots. I don't have a problem with Shane Beamer climbing 24 spots because he really did. He like, what was the win total? Three and a half. Yeah. He I was going to say he doubled the win total. Yeah. So cool. But then, then they're not SEC yet, but Steve Sarkeesian climbed seven spots in the rankings after a disappointing year at Texas. The only thing that changed is Texas joined the SEC. Uh, and then finally, Josh Heupel at Tennessee was 52 last year, climbs 19 spots to 33 after going seven and six. And again, you exceed expectations, but it, you went seven and six. Meanwhile, Pat Narduzzi, he went 11 and three, Won the ACC, got pit to the Peach Bowl. His quarterback was a Heisman finalist. He climbed four spots. <laughs> Granted, he was at thirty-one, so he's only got so much room to climb, and it's like it's probably it's much more difficult to climb once you start getting higher. But still, a coach is climbing twenty-something spots for going seven and six. Pat Narduzzi's winning a power conference. He's climbing four spots. Meanwhile, guys like Mel Tucker and Dave Aranda jumped into the top fifteen, top twenty. <laughs> for having good seat. Like Michigan State didn't win the Big Ten. You want to throw Aranda up there because he had a great year and won the Big 12? Fine. I like Dave Aranda too. I also like Mel Tucker. Do I think that they've accomplished more in their careers to this point than Pat Narduzzi? No. So Another one. Sam yeah. Pittman ahead of Pat Narduzzi. Yes. Coming in at top 22. And Sam Pittman had a really nice year. But what, what Narduzzi has done at Pitt is completely completely more impressive and he's done yeah. it over time he's done it longer mm -hmm. like we've seen coaches have one good year at arkansas before and then quickly you know go back to norm i'll, I'll be very curious to see how that unfolds see so yeah, i just i feel like if if you're an sec coach like you get five spots per win pretty much <laughs> i think it is very easy to put pat narduzzi in the top 40 and i think it is more difficult to put him in the top 20 when you're actually shaking out your list mm -hmm. and that like a lot of coaches in the 20 to 40 range, it, it can, it can get a little tricky when you're breaking those ties right there. I, I had Pat Narduzzi at number 31 on my ballot and you know, he has averaged about eight wins a season. He has won the coastal division twice. He has now won an ACC championship. There's absolutely an argument based on this past season for him to be uh, moving up a little bit higher. The high floor proposition, I think, also gets you that high floor ranking, but it is difficult in terms of being able to jump past some of those other coaches. You know, Mike Leach is right ahead of him in our consensus rankings. Mike Leach, are, are you taking the full body of work into consideration? Like, are we going Texas Tech, Washington State? Mm -hmm. Where Washington State had at least one really good season, double-digit wins, contend for a Pac-12 North title, and then at Mississippi State, you know, has, has very much dug into a, a place of consistency here in his first couple seasons. Like, Pat Narduzzi and Mike Leach, I feel like Mike Leach's body of work is a little bit bigger, so I could understand why you would rank Leach ahead of him without needing the SEC bump that uh, the SEC coaches are getting. 
Well, I had Leach at 21 and Narduzzi at 22. Where do you have Mark Stoops? Mark Stoops, I had at 11. Wow. There's an SEC bump for you. See, that's but see, that's the thing though. That's sustained. Like he's been doing that at Kentucky now. He's at like what won at least 10 games three times now in like the last four years. Yeah, I had him at 12. Yeah, I feel like to be able to do that at Kentucky is like for the same reason I had Ferentz high, you know, ranked at 14. Just being able to do that at a program like that and sustain it, I think is more valuable than Dave Aranda having one great season at Baylor after having a terrible season at Baylor the year before. You know what I mean? So like I feel like Stoops has accomplished more. That's why I have Aranda at 18, Stoops at 11. I have him ahead of Matt Campbell. I have him ahead of Fitzgerald. I have him ahead of Ference, Harbaugh, Franklin, because I think that he's had a much better sustained record of it. What'd you and do with James Franklin? James Franklin, I have it fit at 16. I have him at 11 and I don't like it. Like, yeah. I opened up my ballot for prep and I was like, oh, I could really make some arguments for some of those coaches that I got in there at 12, 13, 14, 15 for being ahead of Franklin. Franklin, of course, I give him credit for what he did at Vanderbilt, uh, as well as being able to have um, for about two to three seasons, you know, Penn State really was one of the most successful teams of the playoff era to not make the playoff. You know, in those offseason, who's the next team that's going to reach their first college football playoff? You, you'd, you'd always put them up there. There's well, things have gotten a little bit shaky here in the last two years. I think there's a, that's why there's a lot of expectations and excitement going into this year. But I, I, I don't know what the bias is for that on uh, on Franklin. Maybe it was uh, valuing some of his work as a recruiter as well, and also you know not only recruiting players, but don't don't you think James Franklin is a plus value like staff at staff hiring? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, his, his coaching staffs are pretty good as evidenced by what they've gone on to do and the head coaching opportunities that they've gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I just, I think that the, you look at the last two years and it's, you got to start knocking them a little bit. doesn't mean he can't climb right back up into the top 10 with another strong season, but Penn state's been bad the last two seasons. It's just, it's been a mediocre football team. And that's, he's, that's some of that responsibility has to lay at his feet. Ryan day of Ohio state. Seems to be uh, one that is is drawing a lot of uh, conversation. I had him at number four on my ballot. He was at number six on the consensus. Ryan Day has zero bad losses. He's been the head coach for three full seasons, and he has taken a defeat in the national championship game. He has lost to in the college football playoff. He was defeated by the eventual Pac-12 North champions and the eventual Big Ten champions. Every, those are the four. That's it. Three seasons, four losses, zero bad losses for Ryan Day. He was at number four last year. He dropped two spots to number six. Is is Ryan Day rightly rated compared to uh, his surroundings where you've got Lincoln Riley at four, Jimbo Fisher at five, and then Brian Kelly at seven, Kyle Whittingham at eight? I had Day at seven. Ooh, okay. I, my my top here. I had Saban at one, Dabo at two, Kirby at three, Kelly at four, Jimbo five, Lincoln six, and then Ryan Day seven. And I think that while Ryan Day's had a great career, and like you said, he doesn't have a bad loss. Saban's won titles, Swinney's won titles, Kirby just won a title. Brian Kelly's been to multiple title games into the playoff, you know, multiple times. Jimbo's won a national title. Lincoln Riley's been to the playoff three times. So it's like Ryan Day hasn't really accomplished any more than any of those six coaches. He's got, so I, but he's got a playoff win. He does. You know, which is something Lincoln does. I thought the Lincoln Ryan, uh, Ryan Day one was interesting because they were yeah. both they're similar. Now Lincoln mm-hmm. Riley's had more time to build up a better record and get more playoff appearances. Heisman winners both handed the reins, you know, of a, of a winning program from a great coach. Um, I, that one was tough for me because I was I thought Lincoln Riley was too high in the consensus one at four, and then I was like, all right, where do you who do you drop out? Who do you put under? And I I thought you could maybe make a case for Ryan Day over Lincoln Riley, but the timeline is there. You know, it, like Lincoln Riley's had more time to consistently win. Yeah, I, th- you know? I think there's a great case for Ryan Day ahead of Lincoln Riley. For my decision, it really came down to like my top five or my top five. I didn't really have any questions about those. And then it was Riley or Day for six. And I honestly, I just went with Riley because the one thing like I've been like with Ryan Day. When he took over, he took over a program that was in great shape. I mean, Urban Meyer built that thing. And my question for Ryan Day was, how are they going to be able to maintain it? And I think Ryan Day is doing an excellent job of maintaining it. I think he's doing as well as could be expected. My concern is that 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 maintenance has been mostly on the offensive side of the ball. And I think defensively, 
that's a program that has slipped in recent years. And now maybe, you know, bringing in Jim Knowles to run the defense will be what fixes it. And if that's the case, then they're going to win the Big Ten. They're going to get to the playoff. And of course, Ryan Day is going to jump up again just because of that. But I do think there has been some slippage on the defensive side of the ball under Ryan Day that wasn't there when Urban was there. So that, to me, was kind of the deciding factor in knocking him just below Lincoln. Herm Edwards falls 34 spots in these rankings. That does not come as a huge surprise. Brian Harson falls 21 spots in those rankings. I think that that it's probably it is. That's a different is, kind of SEC bias. There is no way that as a voter, you cannot be influenced by the way that the last, what, four months have gone mm-hmm. for Auburn football and not think that there's going to be some impact on the way that you view Brian Harson compared to his contemporaries. Now I move to another one of our big droppers. And it's so interesting. You mentioned, Tom, that by the nature of these rankings, it is much easier to make a big jump up than there is to have a big drop because we had 29 coaching changes across all of FBS. 14 of them came at the Power 5 level. And a lot of new coaches are just going to start these rankings down near the bottom, especially if you're a first-time head coach. Hello, Jake Dickert at Washington State, Mike Elko at Duke. You know, there's... You can build out 65 through like 58 or 57 pretty easily so that you don't have these massive drops. But Indiana's Tom Allen dropped 20 spots. Mm -hmm. Are we we shaky on the Tom Allen experience or is this a cooling off of the excitement of the Hoosiers having one of their most successful wins seasons in decades uh, in recent years? I can't speak for everybody, but let's see. Where did I have Tom? I had Tom at 32. He finished at 40 in our rankings. Um, clearly, somebody's very, very low on Tom Allen in our, amongst our voting panel. But I, I think, yeah, I think part of it was, like we mentioned earlier, like the recency bias is always going to play a huge role. And I just think that in last year's rankings, the story of Indiana in that COVID season was one of the, you know, better stories of the college football season for the Hoosiers to have that kind of year that come out of nowhere, play that well. I think that just boosted Allen's stock a lot when it came to putting together rankings. Because I think too, when you go through these, like everybody has different ways that they're ranking coaches. Like some might just be ranking them strictly as recruiters. Some might just be ranking them strictly for what they've done, whatever. But I think that no matter how you do it, you tend to have your top 20, and then you have your bottom 10, and then everything else in between, you're really splitting hairs. You're kind of just putting personal preferences. And I think that coming off of a winless season in the Big Ten, it was very easy for some voters to just keep knocking Allen down and putting other guys ahead of him. And that's probably what played the biggest role in his drop. I had him at 28. Really? Clearly, you and I are probably on the higher end, considering he finished with, 40. Like, I'm guessing somebody had him in the 60s or the high 50s at a minimum. I, I think he's a good football coach. I think he does a good job of motivating players and put like getting you ready for Saturdays, program development, like all, all of that stuff. I think that Tom Allen is a, is a great college football coach. And again, just being on this list, I think you are a very good college football coach. I've got him in the top half of my 65. Okay, big risers. You mentioned Dave Aranda. Who jumped? The largest rise of any coach in the history of these rankings. 51? Yeah. 51 <laughs> spots. He went from 62 to 11. They had him at they had him in the bottom 5 and now he is up to number 11. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, I had him at 18 on mine. And as I was doing it, I was like, is this too high? <laughs> so somebody had him higher. I had him at 13, which, yeah. again, I was. I, so I some was, people had him in their top 10, clearly. How's he getting to 11 if he's not in people's top 10? Is the stock price too hot on Dave Aranda right now? I think so. I love Dave Aranda. I hate to say it, but I think that some people are a little too high. I'd like to see a sustained run before we can. And I think him. some people are too results driven. Like, it, it recency bias, but also the recency of like, would you win this year? Like Kirby jumping Dabo is a little bit ridiculous. That I is know. the worst ranking of all. Right. I'm I mean, it just shouldn't, it and it's not, it shouldn't be an insult to, to Kirby. Like it's just, no. it is, you just can't make a really strong case other than think, he just beat Nick Saban. Like that's it. If which Kirby Dabo was already done. If Kirby put in a ballot, I bet he would have Dabo ahead of himself. <laughs> right. He's won multiple national titles. It's like, hello. Yeah, he, 
what was it? It six straight college football playoff appearances. I mean, Clemson's know. down year was what eleven and three. Ten yeah. and three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten yeah. and three. It's like, oh, they had a terrible season. They went ten and three. <laughs> um, Mel Tucker jumped thirty-three spots in these rankings after a strong season uh, for the Spartans this past year. Is that too hot? Uh, based on my ballot, yeah, because he finished where he's at. He's at twenty-four on the consensus. Twenty-four went from fifty-seven consensus. to twenty-four, and I had him at twenty-seven on my ballot. So not like. I, I, I'm I fine if you want Mel Tuck in your top 25 because I don't think you know we should just base it off last year. But I think that the way I look at things, I think Mel Tucker had a great season last year. And I think if I'm a Michigan State fan, I'm very optimistic going forward. But what remains to be seen is we saw him hit a lot of home runs in the transfer portal. We don't know yet if that's a sustainable route to success. Mm-hmm. I so, gave him credit for that, by the way. I had him mm-hmm. right on the money at number 24 on my ballot. And a lot of it was not just the win total, but the idea that he was able to take not just Kenneth Walker III, but a lot of key players and be able to get them in one year to all buy into the program and be able to go out there and execute. I think Mel Tucker is a very good football coach, as evidenced by his time, his long time as a coordinator at a very high level. And so Michigan State feels like a a good spot for him to be able to be the best version of himself as a college football coach. I, I, I like him as a top 25 coach. It was a huge jump. And I almost laughed like, what are, are we, are we adjusting based on contracts too? No, right? like, that's what I'm saying. He better be a top 25 <laughs> coach getting that money. We're trying to make, we're trying to make the athletic department of Michigan state feel better about itself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, all right. Any other, uh, any other coaches or names that, that jumped out to y'all in terms of, you know, where they stood on the list compared to other coaches, what kind of moves they made, anything like that? I think it's good to see Kyle Whittingham finally getting the credit he deserves for what he's been doing at Utah. And maybe there's some recency bias in there because of the way they played against Ohio State. But I think he's consistently been one of the more underrated coaches in college football. And it's it's good to see him in this list. I mean, he mm-hmm. deserves to be there. He's the first coach that you go to outside of the like capital B blue bloods. Like mm-hmm. who's who's the best non, you know, Ohio State. Georgia, Clemson, LSU, like who's who's the best coach outside of that? It's without a doubt. Um, in my mind, Kyle Whittingham. He was number seven on my ballot, number eight on the overall rankings. And they did, as you mentioned, just won the Pac-12 for the very first time since joining the league. A phenomenal uh, year. Hey, we got a great question here from uh, the chat. As always, thanks to everybody. Come and smash that uh, like button. Hit subscribe so that you can jump in on the conversation when we record live here on youtube.com slash cover three. Where would Luke Fickle, the head coach of Cincinnati, land on this list? And this can just be sort of our opinion based on like everything else is static. And, you know, what is the neighborhood that you think Cincinnati coach Luke Fickle would be? Of course, Cincinnati will be a Power 5 program um, when they join the Big 12. And as we, if if the Power 5 still exists, if everybody's not, if we're not in the college football Super League by then, then we'll be putting together these uh, these rankings then as well. And Luke Fickle, if he's at Cincinnati, will have a chance to be stacked up against the rest. But where would you all put Luke Fickle if we added him to this pool of candidates? I don't know exactly where, but he'd be in my top 10, and I think he would end up in the top 10 overall, too, especially coming off a playoff berth. Yeah, I think you put him ahead of Matt Campbell. Somebody yeah, who's I would not highly yeah. rated. I would probably, I think that I'm looking at my top 10. I've got Saban. Ahead of Dave Aranda? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Right? Longer track record, better, more consistent. Mike, Gundy, think- Mike Gundy is the like pivot point for me. I think Mike Gundy's still underrated for what what he's been able to accomplish over a long period of time. That's true. At Longevity a, is at a place that's not easy. I think like they, I don't know, man. I think I think Gundy's a little now. They had their little slip up here the last four or five years, but man, they got it. Big. It seems like they're getting closer to getting back on that perennial ten win season type of deal. I think I'd have Fickle about eight or nine. I'm trying to decide whether I'd have him in front of or behind Whittingham. But he's not going to be any lower than nine on my ranking. And you mentioned, um, you know, they had a couple years where they slipped up a little bit. Slipping up a little bit was still going seven and six, eight and five, eight and three. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a program that, for the Which, most part, is finishing in the top three of the Big Twelve every single 
season. It yeah. is more often than not finishing as one of the top 25 teams in the country uh, for the last 14 seasons. I mean, it is uh, a true model of consistency where if you compare them to everybody else, it's awesome. The problem is if you just compare him to Oklahoma and specifically his record in that game, I think that's why he ends up being a little underrated. I also think too, like the slipping up is eight and five, seven and six. But if you go to the pre-Gundy era, you know, eight and five, seven and six seasons were probably the goal. <laughs> so now it's like going eight and five and or seven and six. And so he's had a down year. And that's just kind of speaks to the impact he's had there. Well, it is the full Power 5 coach rankings. You can check them out at cbssports.com. Tom Fernelli wrote all of the blurbs, but he did not decide all of the numbers. Please remember that when you aggregate his content, that these are the consensus rankings that many of us voted on. But, you know. All you have to do to know is to actually read it. It says it right there in the post. We need to include it in every all sixty-five blurbs, just just to make sure that we uh, that we go ahead and draw it. And the the fun thing about this is it allows us to enter the season with a real uh, look at where these coaches stand, and then we come back next May, shuffle it again, new risers, new fallers, and uh, a whole new debate for the best coaches in college football. You can follow him on Twitter at Danny Cannell. You can follow him at Tom Cannell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Chip is free. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road, any road, the steeper the better. Because my all new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.